Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup, on-farm research and demonstration with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI's team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials, and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Today, I have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Catherine Rashawn. Catherine is an Associate Professor of Veterinary and Wildlife Entomology at the University of Manitoba. Her research program is focused on insects and ticks as vectors of livestock and wildlife pathogens. Before joining the Department of Entomology in 2012, Catherine was a postdoctoral fellow at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, where she worked on Rocky Mountain wood ticks. Past research includes work on flies and their ability to transmit bacteria and viruses in cattle, swine, and poultry operations. Currently, her research has an emphasis on the distribution and ecology of American dog ticks and blackleg ticks, but she's hopeful to get back into other bitey things like flies, lice, and mites in the near future. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you for taking your time to meet with me today. I know that your spring schedule is so busy. I've been really looking forward to our conversation, although I'm not a person who likes wood ticks. I know that there's lots of information that you have to share with our listeners. I touched briefly on this in the intro, but can you share a bit more about you, your history and background, including your background in science and your interest in agriculture? Sure. I'm originally from Quebec. That's where I grew up and that's where I did all my school through undergrad and and, and everything, everything in French. During my undergraduate degree in biology, I had to pick at some point between a fish class and an insect class. And I thought insects were more interesting than fish, even though I was actually afraid of insects. And I thought, well, maybe if I learn more about them, I won't be that afraid. And I thought they were absolutely fascinating. Every time I came out of that class, I was like, wow, that was so cool. There was one lecture in particular about fleas and how fleas can transmit the plague and how all of that works and who found that out. And I just sat there and I went, that's what I want to do. (laughs) So so that really (laughs) literally changed my life. And then I learned about ticks and I thought, you know, how fascinating that something so small can, you know, change the behavior of their hosts and do all these things. So I very early on was interested in working with ticks, but for my master's degree, my advisor at the time said, well, yeah, ticks are cool, but they take a long time to reproduce and you only have a short time to do a master's degree. How do you feel about flies? And I said, do they suck blood? (laughs) (laughs) And then then he said, well, they can. So then I started working on uh, blood sucking flies, stable flies in particular, And I did my PhD with stable flies, uh, but I still always had ticks in the back of my mind. And uh, then I ended up working on a postdoc on ticks. And so that's kind of how I got into the whole thing. But I I wanted to be a vet for a while and then realized, no, I don't really want to be a vet. I still like animals. And through entomology, I realized that insects and ticks can really affect animal health. And that's where I thought it was really interesting. And that was the the whole flea and plague thing and and that interaction between arthropods and animals. 
And I just thought that's really, really neat. And I can actually really improve the health of animals and their well-being by trying to protect them from all these insects and ticks and things like that. So that's kind of how I got into the more animal agriculture part of entomology. That's so interesting. How long have you been studying ticks? 2009 was my first, or I guess, official research project that was on, on ticks. That was when I started my postdoc at Agriculture Canada. And I've been working on ticks since then. What species of ticks would you be studying in Manitoba? Uh, we actually have quite a few species, but the ones that I'm interested in are more of the generalist uh, feeding ticks. And so especially for the project here is um, the American dog tick, what most people here would call a wood tick, and also black-legged ticks. There's also another common name for this that people use. The black-legged tick is also known as the deer tick. So the two species that I'm mostly looking at is the American dog tick and the black-legged tick. Do different species of ticks have different habitats? Yes, yes, they do. They have very often different preferences on hosts, but also different requirements and preferences for their habitat as well. We take those two ticks that I was just talking about, the American dog tick or wood tick and the black-legged tick. They can share some habitat, so you can find them in some of the same places. But in general, wood ticks prefer areas that are a little bit more open. So if there's trees, it'll be a more open canopy with sunlight coming through. And areas where, there, yeah, there's more sunlight, they can survive a little bit drier conditions. Uh, so overall, things are a little bit more open. Think long grasses and shrubs, things like that. So they still need a fair bit of vegetation to keep the moisture around. And we can talk about why that's important. But if you compare them with black-legged ticks, for example, they don't tolerate dry conditions very well at all. And so you tend to find them in forested areas where the canopy is closed, where there's leaf litter, something that will keep the, the ground very moist and uh, more shade. So areas that tend to be a lot more humid and dark than what the wood tick would like. I didn't know that either. You are currently working on a project that is assessing the relationship between tick abundance on pastures and on cattle and the risk ticks represent to cattle and livestock workers. For this project, MBFI's pastures are two of four sites that are being sampled for ticks. Can you tell me more about this project and what information you're looking to obtain through a project like this one? Sure. This project comes from, I guess, what I would consider the natural progression to work that we've done before. And I say we, because for the last five, at least years, I've been working with Neil Chilton at the University of Saskatchewan and Shonda Gossif at Agriculture Canada and Lethbridge to look at the geographic distribution of dermacenter ticks. So the American dog tick and the Rocky Mountain wood tick. And those are two tick species that can transmit bovine anaplasmosis. And we had evidence from uh, some of Dr. Dergossif's previous work that there was a fairly significant shift in the geographic distribution of some of those ticks and that they were found in places where they weren't reported before. And then talking to people, people would say, yeah, we never saw ticks here before and now we see them all the time. And so we actually went, got boots to the ground and covered pretty much all of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta and parts of BC. And we went and we looked for ticks. And we found American dog ticks 350 kilometers north in Manitoba from where they were reported previously, and also 200 kilometers west, so into Saskatchewan, almost to the Alberta border, where before, between the two species, there was a, a gap of about 100 kilometers where you would have wood ticks to about mid the middle of Saskatchewan, and you'd have a little buffer zone, and then you would get Rocky Mountain wood ticks. And now they overlap. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that's happening there. And so we were able to create these risk maps to try and figure out, okay, so within the prairies, where are areas where you're more likely to find ticks compared to not? 
to eventually try and model as things are changing, can we figure out, you know, how far they could go, right? I mean, we never thought they'd be able to go to be in the paw, but they are. So where else could they go? So now saying, okay, now we have this large scale, but within that, we know that it's not equal. You could walk somewhere and get no ticks and you walk 50 meters left of there and you'll get covered. So what's happening? What What's different? Can we actually figure that out? And then, of course, thinking with the background of well, the importance of this is that we have these ticks that are moving into areas where they were not before and areas where there's cattle producers that never had to really be concerned about ticks. Mm -hmm. And so how could we or can we figure out within a pasture, looking at the habitat and different characteristics of a pasture, can we identify areas where we might say this is more likely to have ticks? And then from there saying, well, okay, this is more likely to have ticks. Here are things that, you know, producers might be able to do to prevent having more ticks on their cattle. Are the species of ticks active at different times of the year? Yes, so they are. And this is one of the plot twists of this study. I approached the Manitoba beef producers to support this research. And they said, yeah, of course, we're interested. Bovine anaplasmosis is, you know, something that we care about. It's important for our members. But we're also concerned about black-legged ticks because our producers work outside and they're fencing and everything. They come in contact with all kinds of ticks. So, you know, are we more at risk of getting Lyme disease and things like that because of what we do? And, you know, we'd like to know. Are different species of ticks active at different times? Yes, they, they are. Some species are active at the same time, uh, but it does vary. The first thing that's important to realize is that when you see an adult tick, it's at least two years old because the life cycle is at least two years. And I say at least because it is based on temperature. And so it, it can take longer, especially for black-legged ticks. In Canada, it might take three years and sometimes maybe more for the full life cycle from the egg to the adult tick. And so because of that, you will have different life stages active at different time over that period. So in the spring, like now, we see adult ticks that have overwintered. And so they come out and they, they feed on us. In June and July, you will have the nymphs of black-legged ticks. And so those are a little bit more significant for pathogen transmission because they're super, super small. They're the size of a poppy seed. So think of your muffin, you know, with the little black seeds, poppy seeds, that's the size of a black-legged tick nymph. And those can transmit Lyme disease and other bacteria and pathogens. So you still have to be careful at that time of year, even though you won't see as many wood ticks. And then in the fall, so end of September into October, you will have a new batch. So the new cohort of adult black-legged ticks will come out and try to feed. So your wood ticks, you usually see in May and June, and a lot of people avoid camping at that point because they just don't want the ticks. But the sad reality is that you're at risk of ticks in Manitoba pretty much when there's no snow on the ground. I bring joy everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like this year with the spring feeling like it was so late that like there was maybe a day that we didn't have snow and then I had a wood tick as soon as the snow was gone. And then I think it stormed one more time and I was thinking, wow, now there is snow and we already have wood ticks. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it happens almost every year when sometimes at the end of February, early March, we get sort of a, a warm spell where we yeah. get days that are sunny and, and, and really warm. And almost every year when that happens, I get people saying, hey, I found a tick. And it's early March. But if there's enough sun to melt a few spots in the heat, there's ticks around there. It'll come out. Do they hibernate over the winter or do they burrow? Yeah, okay. in the leaf litter. And then the snow keeps them nice and insulated. Mm -hmm. 
How often are you at each of the sites? So we scratch the cattle um, as they go onto pasture. Then we will estimate that it's going to be peak tick activity. At MBFI, things are a little bit different because the cattle are weighed monthly. And so we take advantage of that because all the cattle are going to go through the chute anyway. So we time it with MBFI schedule. So sometimes it's a little bit off the tick schedule, but it's close enough to have a good estimate. And then at the end of the season, so as late as possible, because those black-legged ticks come back in the fall, so end of September, October. And so as sometimes producers can push their grazing season as, you know, into October sometimes, this is what we're trying to get. So uh, last year, again, everything was so dry. A lot of producers had to stop their grazing early. And so we didn't get that, you know, the, the black-legged tick portion. Uh, we did on horses, though. Horses were still out. So the three times, the right at the beginning, peak tick season, and then at the end of the season. That's when we scratch the cattle for the dragging this year, we'll try to drag a little bit more often, maybe every two weeks to get a better picture of when the ticks are active. Um, but yeah, last year with a lot of the COVID restrictions, we, we were also limited to what we could do. What is the process for sampling pastures for ticks? We use a very scientific technique called dragging, where essentially we make a drag, which is a piece of white flannel like diaper material that we cut to one meter by one meter so we attach that to a little dowel and then a string and we literally drag that piece of cloth behind us as we walk and because it's one meter by one meter we can have an estimate of the area that we cover and this is because ticks will be looking for hosts on the ground so they're in the grass uh, on the edge of shrubs, things like that. And do, they have this behavior called questing. So they climb at the tip of a blade of grass and then they have eight legs. So they use usually uh, four or six to hang on to the blade of grass. And then they extend the top two because they actually smell with the tip of their legs. So they have their legs up like this. And so when an animal comes by, they just latch on. They have little hooks and then when you walk by, you or your dog or whatever, or the piece of flannel. And so they attach to this flannel. And we use white flannel, not because it's attractive, but because it offers a good contrast. Mm -hmm. So if you see people walking around with blankets in a pasture, that's us. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do. I had a group of students uh, a few years ago when we were doing the sampling all around the, pr the province and they called themselves team Linus <laughs> from, from peanuts or Linus always around with his blanket. Yeah. But that's what we do. We drag this piece of cloth for a certain number of quadrats. So everybody in my lab knows exactly how many steps they need to walk to cover 10 meters. They practice it. They practice the distance with flags and everything. So they know how long 10 meters is. And so they stop every 10 meters and they look at the flannel and then they record what they find. They pick up all the ticks that they find and they record that and they put them in a vial and then they keep going. And as a group, we do this for at least two kilometers. So that's 200 times 10 meters. And we do that in all the pastures where we visit. And so we collect our ticks that way. What is the process for sampling cattle and what areas of the animals would ticks be most prevalent? So that's another thing that uh, usually changes by species. And so what we do, uh, we have another very scientific term here. We scratch cattle <laughs> for ticks because we use highly specialized equipment. It's our hands. And so we have cattle go through uh, the squeeze chute and then we use our hands to scratch as much as we can of their body to find any attached ticks. There are, of course, limitations to this because it's kind of risky. 
cattle usually don't really like being scratched and handled and all of that. It can be quite tricky because the animals uh, don't necessarily like it. And we want to keep the animals safe. And we want, I want to keep my staff safe. So we will check the head and as much as we can. So anything that will have an area where ticks might be able to, to squeeze into. So especially around any kind of tag, ear tags in particular, mm-hmm. anything like that, ticks will like to go there. Ticks like pressure. So that's why even on yourself, you might find them, you know, around your belt or where there's your, your watch. For me, it's usually where I have my hair in a ponytail because there's a little bit more pressure there. And, and they kind of like to squeeze into that. That explains so, why on the dog, they're often under the collar then. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. And so we always check, you know, the ears like this, but the face is quite often and the neck quite often has a fair bit of ticks. So we check that as much as we can. The legs, especially the armpit, those are areas uh, around the legs and the lower part of the body where ticks do like to go. But that is unsafe for us to check. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't check there. So there really are limitations to what we can do and to our results in, in, in that way, because we can't check everything. Other places where uh, ticks like to go is around the tail, especially under the tail. Uh, so we do have good access to that. And even the inside of the back legs, we can usually get that fairly well checked. So is there a number of ticks at which you're concerned for the well-being of the animal? Not really. So it's not because it's not concerning. Obviously, when you have an animal that has, you know, a couple hundred ticks, that's that's not good. That's a lot of, of ticks removing blood and, and, you know, potentially transmitting pathogens. But really, it's more for anemia and things like that. But for the American dog tick, we don't have that much information about like what would be a number that would really affect production there's a little bit more information for the rocky mountain wood tick but even there like you don't usually get the number of ticks that would really exsanguinate cattle and it's like when you if you think of large numbers you think of maybe moose ticks on a moose where they get tens of thousands right we usually you you don't see that uh, so much on on cattle here. So there's, there's not really a number that I would say is particularly concerning. Horses are quite susceptible and they tend to get more ticks than cattle. Actually on that topic, how are horses included in the study and where would you find ticks most prevalently on them? So horses were in Uh, included in the study when the Manitoba beef producers asked to also look at black-legged ticks. So black-legged ticks can transmit other pathogens. We're mostly familiar with Lyme disease, but they can transmit a bacteria that's another kind of anaplasma, actually. It's granulocytic anaplasmosis, not bovine anaplasmosis. It's a different anaplasma bacteria, and that can affect humans, but it actually has very serious consequences for horses. And so wood ticks are not so much a problem for bovine anaplasmosis with with horses. Black-legged ticks can be a problem if they transmit this other anaplasma. So we thought, well, if we're going to be looking at black-legged ticks, there are quite a few cattle producers that have horses, that use horses to work. And so, you know, they're, they're working animals. And so we should maybe look at the risk. And so in places where we didn't have uh, working horses, we found other people that had their horses and pastures not too, too far away. And so in a similar region, we don't actually sample the horses. So we don't scratch the horses ourselves. What we do is we give uh, little sampling tubes to the owners and we ask them to remove ticks from their horses and then put them in the little vials. So we get the collection of the ticks that were on the horses, but we have the participation of the the horse owners for that. On horses, again, it depends by species, but again, the the legs and the lower part of the body is is they're good areas for for ticks. And then also to a point in the face, 
you have to think ticks are on the ground. Mm-hmm. So what gets in contact more with the grass uh, and the shrubs? Well, it'll be the legs as they walk by and the head as they go down and graze. So that's usually where you'll find them. Humans are also included in the study as their work in the pastures and with the livestock is an important part of daily operations. How are you sampling ticks on humans for this project? We're oddly enough, not allowed to scratch people. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) this is another area where we provide humans with vials and we ask them to collect any ticks that they find crawling on them. So not just the ticks that are attached, but the ticks that they find crawling on their body. When it's at all possible, we would like people to avoid a tick bite, but we can also sort of consider that if that tick that was crawling was not found and removed, it likely would have found a site to attach. So we're kind of going with whatever you find on yourself as you're working put it in a little jar. And then when you get back, put it, drown it in alcohol in those little tubes that we give you, then you write the date. So we have an idea of, you know, over time, how many potential bites a person would have had in their day. So that's what we do. So we have participation there and everything is anonymized. So whenever there's, you know, many workers, we don't ask who it was on or just these are the ticks that were on humans today. And that's it, because we don't, well, we don't want to deal with (laughs) personal information or things like that, right? We just, we're just interested in what's the risk of, you know, what's the the biting pressure is what we would call it. Okay. This project is also using some unique technology through GPS collars, which allows you to collect data on animal movement within the pastures. Approximately how many animals per herd are wearing collars and what are your goals in using this technology? So through the partnership with MBFI, we've actually been able to use some of the collars that they have purchased and to use those collars on the other herds that we have in in the project. And so in that case, we have two collars per herd. So we ask the producers, who of course know their animals, to kind of pick which ones are the social animals that tend to sort of hang with the group. And that gives us an idea of where most of the group is by looking at at those collars. And at MBFI, because of other projects that are ongoing, there's a few more collars there, but I'd say there's at least two collars per herd for this project. And what we're trying to do is we're dragging the pasture and we're trying to figure out where the ticks are. And with the GPS collars, we're trying to figure out where the cows go and at what time. Because if we don't find a lot of ticks on the cattle, it could be because the ticks aren't interested. And even if there's lots of ticks in the pasture, they just don't like to bite cattle that much. And the pressure, the biting pressure is actually low. Or it could be because the cows avoid certain areas where the ticks are. That is also a possibility. So we want to know where do we find the ticks and can we find certain habitat? And then where do the cows go? Maybe the cows really like where the ticks hang out. And so in that way, we would have greater incentive to maybe fence areas out or keep animals out of a specific area at certain times of the year. Or if that's not possible, I mean, sometimes you're limited. This is the pasture I have. It's full of ticks, but that's all I have. And then in that case, then there's maybe more incentive for the use of acaricides, for example, to kind of limit chemically the number of bites that animals would get, right? So depending on the situation, what you can do. For that, we would like to make sure that we understand where the animals go and when they go there. What is the testing or what further testing is completed on the ticks after you've collected them all? So unlike most people, we don't make fire and throw our ticks in there. <laughs> we need to, even though some, sometimes some students kind of want to do that. <laughs> we, um, we collect them all and then we identify them. So even though most of them are American dog ticks uh, or black-legged ticks, and we can just look at them and know, we make sure that they're exactly that. So we inspect them under a microscope every single tick that we collect. 
and we uh, make sure that they're what we think they are. And then we send the American dog ticks to uh, my collaborator at the University of Saskatchewan, Dr. Neil Chilton. And in his lab, they are tested for anaplasma marginale um, and, and other anaplasma and other uh, bacteria as well. But for this project specifically, we're looking for anaplasma marginale, and that's the bacteria that causes bovine anaplasmosis. The black-legged ticks are sent to the National Microbiology Lab here in Winnipeg, and they are tested for a whole list of things, but for this project specifically for the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, for that other anaplasma that causes granulocytic anaplasmosis in humans and horses, um, also for Babesia, which is a a little blood parasite. Uh, it's not a bacteria. It's a bit more similar to malaria. Uh, and we have that in Manitoba as well. So they're tested for that and all kinds of, of other things. But those are the three pathogens for this project that we're interested in. Is this the first year of this project? The first year was last year. So oh. last 2021 was the first year. And then this year is the second and last year. I know that I read that somewhere, but I couldn't remember whether it was a start in 21 or a start in 22. So do you have a total number of ticks that you found last year? Like, do you keep track of how many you have? I should. I don't remember it. Last year was also one of those special years, right? So with the drought, everything got started super late. So the ticks didn't start late at all, but the animals didn't go on pasture until the end of June. So a whole month too late. And so a lot of the tick activity was like the peak tick activity was passed. Mm-hmm. So some places we barely had any ticks. I mean, at MBFI in particular, we really didn't have a whole lot. And black-legged ticks, we didn't have any in the spring. We had some on horses in the fall. But other than that, last year was a, a pretty special year, tick-wise, because of the drought. This year, well, we have the opposite, where it's cold and wet. So the ticks are kind of a bit slow to come out because it's a bit cold. And then everything is very wet. So the animals are also a bit late on pasture because, well, in some places, the pastures are underwater. So that's a significant problem. And in other places, they're not, they're not underwater, but it's been so cold that very little has grown. It'll be interesting this year. I think the connection will be a little bit better this year. I think we'll have more ticks, but I'd say probably had about 400 total that we submitted for testing. In my mind, it was going to be like thousands. So 400 doesn't seem that bad. And it, and it really isn't because there are places in Manitoba where, um, I mean, I have colleagues from the U.S. and from other places. They know that if they need ticks, they just call me. And there are secret pockets in Manitoba where I can get a couple thousand ticks in a few hours. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully none of them are close to Brandon. No, no. (laughs) Excuse me. The cat is clawing my chair. (laughs) I thought you had one crawling on you. Now it makes me itchy. Cat is now attacking. So she might make an appearance on your podcast. (laughs) What's the cat's name? That's important. Cricket. Cricket. She's beautiful. She's from a dairy farm in Steinbach. I was working on a dairy farm on stable flies and my technician said I was very stressed and I needed a pet. <laughs> Were they right? Yes. <laughs> what is bovine anaplasmosis and why is it important for producers to know about? So bovine anaplasmosis is primarily a disease of cattle, but it can affect other uh, ruminants. It's caused by a blood cell parasite. It's a bacteria called anaplasma marginale. So I said before, there are other anaplasma, so the one that affects horses is different. So bovine anaplasmosis is caused by this anaplasma marginale bacteria that is a red blood cell parasite. And it's important because animals that are infected with this uh, bacteria affects the health of of the animals. Anaplasmosis uh, used to be a reportable disease in Canada. And since April 1st, 2014, 
the federal government no longer is involved in controlling the disease. And so there's no more uh, testing of cattle that are imported into um, the country from other places in, in North America. And the result of that is that people are more likely to find cattle that are infected with anaplasmosis in their herd because we don't have the controls that we used to have. And so you can have animals that look perfectly healthy, but are infected. And so they can infect other animals. And then you have this disease in your herd and it can be quite significant. So can you tell us how it's spread, obviously through ticks, but how that works? Um, And then what signs or symptoms producers need to be aware of? Yes. So it is, and it can be transmitted by ticks, but not only. Remember I said it's a red blood cell parasite. So it's actually a blood-borne disease. So it's spread by contaminated blood. And so that could be blood-contaminated instruments like uh, needles, dehorning instruments, castration equipment, ear taggers, tattooing instruments, anything that gets contaminated with blood that goes from animal to animal. Obviously, you can anticipate that if we talk about prevention, I'm going to say you have to disinfect everything between animals. But the reality is that often equipment is used between animals without necessarily cleaning. And so anything that will come in contact with blood can become a vector. And then in the same vein, no pun intended, <laughs> you have horseflies. So horseflies will go and bite animal to animal, often in fairly rapid succession because the animals, you know, want to remove them because it hurts. And so when they get moved from an animal, they could have some blood in their mouth parts and then go to the next animal and bite. So that is movement of contaminated blood. And then ticks, ticks are a little bit special because they actually can have the bacteria in their body. And so they can act to a certain point as, as reservoirs. But the important part about ticks is that they can feed on animals that have very, very low level of infection, animals that have no symptoms, that are just carriers, and then they can move that to another animal, which doesn't usually happen with horseflies, for example. You need animals that are in acute infection, so that have a lot of bacteria in their blood. Ticks don't need a lot of bacteria, so that's why they're kind of a little bit more important. And what signs or symptoms in the animals themselves do producers need to be looking for? Yes, of course. So again, it affects red blood cells. And then what happens is the red blood cells get infected and then the spleen will actually destroy the infected red blood cells. So when you start to destroy red blood cells at a fairly high rate, then you get animals that are anemic. They're weak. They're lethargic. Um, They'll stop feeding sometimes and then they'll run a fever. And so when you see those, those symptoms, you can think, well, you know, maybe there's anaplasma. When you have, again, this anemia, you'll have the mucous membranes that will become pale, sometimes even yellowish. So there's some jaundice to a certain point uh, because of all the residues from those uh, red blood cells that have been destroyed. And in certain cases, there can be abortion uh, because, of course, of all these things that are happening in the body. And sudden death can happen in severely infected animals. So because they have so few red blood cells left, so the, the, the packed cell volume is really, really low. So animals can die from very minimal exertion just because they, they can't supply enough oxygen because they're so anemic. And then those symptoms will vary depending on the age of the animal. So animals that are young, usually under a year of age, really won't show that many symptoms, sometimes none at all. Between one and two years old, they might have some mild symptoms. So we're looking more at, you know, something like the lack of appetite, maybe a bit of lethargic, weak or animals. And animals over two years old usually are the ones that would have the more uh, severe symptoms. And that could go to, you know, 30 to 50% mortality rate. Wow. I was just going to ask about the mortality rate. That's a big yeah. number. It is. And, and it, but it really is Um, In older animals, young animals are rarely affected that severely. What can producers do to prevent bovine anaplasmosis? 
And is there a treatment available for animals who have contracted it? Ah, well, that's the thing. So there's no real cure. So that's why prevention is super important. So infected animals can be treated early on. If it's detected early on, they can be treated with um, antibiotics, except that antibiotics will never clear the infection completely. So animals, while they might feel uh, and look better, they'll look healthy and they won't have any more symptoms, they will remain carriers. So they will always have anaplasma in their body. We can't get rid of it. And so just by that, they become reservoirs. So they are um, potential sources of the bacteria to infect other animals. We don't have any vaccines against anaplasma that are available in Canada. And so really what you need to do is to try and prevent anaplasma from getting into the herd in the first place. And so what do you do? Well, you have to keep in mind that a healthy animal can be sold. So it's the buyer's responsibility to make sure that the animals that they bring in are healthy. Testing animals before getting them into the herd, especially if you get animals from the United States. There are many states in the U.S. where anaplasma is endemic. So if you get animals from the U.S., definitely I would recommend testing them. Or when you get animals from areas where there's been lots of anaplasmosis outbreaks. So ask for the herd's health reports, right? You want to know where's this animal coming from, what's been happening in in that herd. Get tests uh, if at all uh, possible. Once you have your herd, what can you do to minimize transmission if you happen to have an animal that's infected? Well, we talked about blood contamination, right? So you want to not have any transfer of blood from one animal to the other. That goes into disinfecting, cleaning all the equipment in between individuals to make sure that you don't move blood from one place to the other. Using maybe single-use needles. If when you do preg check, you want to use single-use gloves, you don't want to move things like that. And then, well, the entomology part, uh, we know that ticks and horseflies can be vectors of this. And so you would want to limit the exposure of your animals as much as possible to ticks and horseflies. And that usually is done with acaricides and insecticides. And also to a certain point, probably some pasture management. That's where this whole project comes in is how can we facilitate that pasture management of where are more risky areas within a pasture? Can we define those? And then what measures might be appropriate? In the September 2019 Cattle Country article, Ticks and Bovine Anaplasmosis, Mapping the Risk, written by Christine Rollick, It is discussed that animals who contract anaplasmosis and recover remain infected and are lifelong carriers. The article expresses that although there is no risk to human health or food safety by a carrier animal entering the food chain, there is a definite risk in keeping a carrier animal in the herd or through selling the animal as a replacement into another herd. One of the ways to reduce this risk is to have an understanding of where higher risk areas might be and testing new animals before introducing them to the herd. What areas of the province would you consider higher risk? From the the work that we've done, pretty much all of Manitoba, southern and central and up to like northern central, (laughs) you know, fairly, fairly north is just hot red, which means you're very likely to find wood ticks when it's peak wood tick activity time. So essentially, you know, in June, you're very likely to find ticks pretty much everywhere in Manitoba. Uh, But again, we're looking very, this is very, very large scale. So thinking that ticks can be focal. So you might have spots where you'll be walking and not find any, but overall in the area, there are likely some. There's some few spots that aren't bright red, but I think that's an artifact of the sampling in a way, but the very sort of southeastern corner of the province there's not as much, but when you think about it, this is, there's a lot more uh, forests there. It's the white shell. Um, and, and so the, the habitat is a little bit different. You definitely find ticks there, but it didn't come up as a super hot spot. You definitely find black-legged ticks, though. 
and we were looking only at uh, American dog ticks. And then there's an area sort of immediately south of, of Winnipeg, maybe around, you know, the Morris area and sort of in that area. And, and I think that is also another sort of artifact because there's a lot of, of cropland um, and maybe not as much animal production. And then areas where we could go sample, like there's a lot of private land and not necessarily a lot of easily accessible land. And so the places where we could go, we didn't find ticks, but it does, again, it doesn't mean they're not there. So those are two spots in our map where it's not as hot. Pretty much if you're in the province, there's ticks. Pretty much if you're in the province, you're going to encounter ticks. Yeah. Wonderful. That's why it's important (laughs) uh, to look at this because all of Manitoba is a risk area for transmission. And so the importance of trying to keep anaplasma out in the first place, this is really key here uh, compared to other places in, in the prairies where, well, yeah, there's ticks, but there's not that many here. It could have a very significant impact. That risk of transmission is just that much higher. Exactly. Yeah. In April of 2021, Manitoba joined the eTIC program. Can you share what the program is and what it offers to producers as well as to the general public? The government of Manitoba has had a tick surveillance program for years now. With technology and, and you know, opportunities, they decided to join the eTIC program. So eTIC was uh, developed at uh, Bishop's University in Quebec and is essentially a, an identification app. And you can also get it, you know, on, there's a website as well, where uh, when you find a tick uh, on yourself, on your pets, on your children, on your cows, <laughs> and you would like to know what it is because you're concerned, the, the idea behind this is especially for black-legged ticks and people that are concerned with pathogens that, that they could get. It's not always obvious for people to figure out, is this a black-legged tick? Am I at risk of getting Lyme disease? So the idea there is that you take as good a picture as you can from the tick. You want both sides of the tick. And then you submit those photos uh, through the website or through the app. And we will identify it for you. And then that way you can have, well, hopefully peace of mind, but also be more aware so that if it is a black-legged tick, then you can, you'll get instructions that say, well, you know, you may be at risk of these different things. These are things to look for here are next steps. And so it's useful to everyone in Manitoba, because again, we have tons of ticks. And if you're not too sure what bit you, now it's fairly easy. How can all of the research and knowledge assist producers in making decisions regarding their grazing management and preventative strategies to assist in herd and producer health? Well, what we're hoping is to be able to identify ticky spots for people and in areas where they didn't have to deal with ticks before. Now, you know, there are people in Southern and Central Manitoba who will be looking at a pasture and go, that's going to be ticky because they know uh, either from experience of having the land for a long time and having to work there and being covered in ticks uh, or having to fence through an area and going, oh gosh, that's going to be the horrible part. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But for areas where the ticks are expanding into um, people may not have that experience. So being able to pinpoint maybe certain characteristics I think will be useful and it will be useful to people also in areas where they know what's ticky or not, because they'll be able to say, oh, well, I was right. And what can I do? What are the components that we need to modify to make it less interesting for ticks, for example? You know, it could be burn it. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes that's not necessarily possible. Those are studies I would like to do as well is, uh, you know, the use of the use of fire, because there's data out there that's not, you know, there's contradicting data, I guess, on on how useful fire is. But that's often what what I hear, you know, we needed to fence, and it was super ticky. So 
we just burned the whole thing down. And then fencing went well, right? But, you know, what we try to bring is the sort of idea that you can hopefully control ticks through pasture management. And if you have enough area where you can rotate, uh, maybe you can keep certain areas not grazed while ticks are uh, at peak activity. If you have certain areas that are very ticky or, you know, fence them off for a certain period. And if you don't have that luxury, then what else can you do? And, and we'll see where cattle like to go. And if they really do prefer all these characteristics that ticks also like, well, then maybe look at investing into acaricides. And then, well, the fun part for me is maybe looking at black-legged ticks. Um, as far as I know, nobody's looked at black-legged ticks on cattle in Canada. Uh, we know that they do bite cattle, but usually not in very high numbers. But in the U.S., they have many other species that will feed on cattle quite aggressively. And so I'm kind of curious to know if maybe there's few black-legged ticks because of competition, or is it different here? And Do they have any natural predators? Yeah, they do. So some birds will eat them, especially when they're nice and fat and engorged. Ticks spend most of their life cycle in the environment, right? Like they spend... 10 days or so on their host feeding, but most of the time they're out in the environment. And so they can be attacked there by shrews or any anything else that eats um, insects and other arthropods, for example. So they'll feed on that. And I suspect that ants probably attack ticks as well, because, and this is somewhat anecdotal and also understanding, you know, ants and what, what they do they kill everything. <laughs> uh, well, the ones that, the ones that hunt anyway, but I very, very rarely find ticks close to anthills. So when we drag, we also get ants on our drags because mm-hmm. they will also attack us and they'll attack the drag. And then when I have an area where they have a lot of ants, I rarely get any ticks on my drag. Now, do you prefer ants or ticks? Neither. I'm not exactly. an person. <laughs> Especially when I was in North Carolina, we had fire ants. Oh, those were nasty. When you guys are out doing the drags and stuff, do you have protective clothing or like, is there a, like a mosquito repellent for ticks or anything like that? Right. So, um, many of the insect, uh, or mosquito repellents will, repel ticks not all of them but um, anything that has DEET in it or a keratin will be good tick repellents but since we are out there looking for ticks and trying to collect them then we do not use uh, repellents Um, we use the very old-fashioned tricks of trying to keep the ticks away from your skin and so in my lab when you do field work boots are mandatory and then long pants with long socks so that you tuck your pants into your socks. So we're super stylish. Not only do we drag blankets, we do it <laughs> with our socks over our pants. I've heard of that uh, before. I didn't know if it actually worked. So that's, yeah, that's good yeah, to know. It does. And then we tuck our shirts into our pants. The whole idea behind this is that again, you have to think like a tick, right? If the ticks are at ground level, What they're going to hit first is going to be your boot or your ankle. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to be crawling up your socks. So if your socks are on top of your pants, the ticks are going to crawl and go from your pants to, from your, your socks to your pants. And then if your shirt is tucked in, they'll go from the pants to your shirt. And all of this time, they're away from your skin Mm -hmm. and you can look down and you can flick them off. If you're wearing your clothes like normal people, (laughs) then the tick will get into your boot, get onto your socks, and then keep going up your socks under your pants. And they will get to your skin much faster and you will not see them while they do it. Same thing if they actually stay onto your pants, like say they, they hit your knee first, well, then they'll get 
you know, they'll stay on your pants and they can get under your shirt and then they'll attach to you and you still won't see it. They are parasites. They are made from thousands of years of evolution here to not be detected. So when a tick bites, you don't notice it. You don't feel it. That's on purpose, right? So don't think you're going to feel the ticks. If you have, you know, long hair on your legs, you might feel them as they're crawling up. That happens sometimes. But most of the time, they're pretty good at not being detected. So the key here is to try and keep them away from your skin as long as possible. We just see like a whole bunch of Manitobans walking around with their socks tucked in and their shirts tucked in everywhere. We're going to know that people have heard this. Yeah, I I don't think the fashion standards will change. One thing I do (laughs) tell people though, and I guess I'll end on this, is if you don't want people to know that you wear your socks over your pants, if you go hiking or something like that, I usually tell them to buy gaiters um, because gaiters are the piece of equipment that you tie uh, onto your boots and then they cover your ankle. And the idea of gaiters is to keep mud or snow outside of your boots, because sometimes when you have mucky conditions or snow, it gets inside your boot and it's very annoying. And so by having gaiters, it hides the fact that your socks are over your pants because it covers the entire area. And not only are you super safe, you you look like a pro. I think that's great advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, safety and fashion. When I'm out fencing next week, I will definitely have a changed wardrobe. Yes, definitely. And depending on what you wear, um, rubber boots, ticks do not like rubber boots. Most of my students wear rubber boots in the field because... Ticks don't attach very well to rubber at all. The distribution of ticks is changing. You know, we've had, we didn't always have black-legged ticks here. That's a relatively recent thing. And we're going to get more ticks. There's a lot of ticks that are moving up uh, north through the U.S. and coming close to Canada. We're going to have other species of ticks coming in. We have to change our behavior. It's as simple as that. We have to change our behavior. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about ticks or about your research or about anything that's coming up that's exciting before we end today? The one thing I'm excited about is eTIC, I guess, because it used to be done through Manitoba Health. And so now we've sort of taken over and partnered with them to, to do it. So it's my lab. And so I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of happy about it and I'm excited about it. We're getting ticks submitted. And so it really gives me a a kind of a good feel for where ticks are and where people are submitting from and, you know, activity and the ratio of black-legged tick to wood tick and that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of excited about that. And I'm kind of excited about the second year of the project to see how things will be maybe a little bit different with these different weather conditions that, that we've had. I'm hoping that we can we can find more black-legged ticks, not because I want them to be everywhere, but just so that we can actually answer questions about risk, right? Because I think what we had last year was a very abnormal year. And so I would like to be able to provide more accurate information. Anyway, thank you. That was was fun. It was. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. I have really enjoyed our conversation and all of the things that I've learned And I'm sure at some point we'll maybe chat again and more about it. Sure. I'd be happy to. And um, I would probably even suggest that my students join in. That would be great. Be their project. Oh, this is, this is good. It was a lot of things that I've never thought about before. I've linked the mentioned article and a second article in the show notes in case listeners would like to find out more information. These articles assisted in my preparation for this episode. It is also important to note that this project would not be possible without funding from the Manitoba Beef Producers, Manitoba Agriculture, and the Canadian Agricultural Partnership. We have a few upcoming grazing workshop series dates to offer reminders of. July 6th is the Health Check Your Pasture and Soils workshop, and August 3rd is Diversify Your Grazing. 
You can register for both of these workshops at www.mbfi.ca registration. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without the funding from the Province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.